Hi, this is Justin. And today on Theocast, we are going to do our best to give the people what they want. By popular demand, we are going to try to answer the question why it is that we have left dispensationalism. Perhaps you're out there and you have spent some time in a dispensationalist context, or maybe you're just seeing aspects of dispensational teaching in your current environment. We're going to have a conversation today about the distinctions between our perspective that is reformed and confessional over and against the perspective that is dispensational. John and I are going to talk a little bit personally. We're going to talk theologically. We hope that this is a clarifying conversation for you. And as always, we hope it encourages you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay tuned. If you'd like to help support Theocast, you can do that by leaving us a review on iTunes and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Plus, we have a Facebook group if you'd like to join the conversation there. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ. Conversations about the Christian life from a Reformed perspective. Our hosts today are John Moffat, pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee, and myself, Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We have met today on a rainy Wednesday morning, at least it is here, yeah, to, here do, Stormy. Uh, to do another podcast. I'm not a huge fan of the rain and the clouds. I understand that the earth needs it, John, but yeah. my mood doesn't so much love it. I'll just be honest. I just need it gone by Friday. I want to actually try and get out and golf, believe it or not. Yeah, you are. So. Hey, just some side hey, news. Hey, the greens this, the greens should be receptive for you. That's right. Amen. Hey, yeah. just total side news. I didn't even tell you I was going to say this, but um big big deal in my life this weekend. I am officially going full-time at my church. So it's exciting. My church is very excited for that. And they're already putting me to work, man. My schedule's busy. <laughs> yeah. But well, man, we got a giveaway today. And uh sometimes we're trying to figure out what we can give away that's related to the podcast, but this day we decided to give away some merch. Sometimes and, we just give away swag. That's right. So <clears throat> we, the coffee cup did well. A lot of people wanted that. Uh, we actually sent them a new one, a custom one. So those of you that signed up, you got a custom coffee cup. It's a little bit different than the one he's holding, but it's uh, still got the cool logo on it. Man, JP is just really rocked. We need to get you like a gold necklace of <laughs> Calvin or something. I don't think I, don't think I could pull that off. You totally, you're the only one who could. It would, and it also, it also would not be good for my marriage. My wife would be like, <laughs> like her eyes would roll out of her head. If I wore something like that. So we're going to give away, if you're watching us on YouTube, which we'd recommend to do if you want, uh, J- JP has our newest Theocast hat available. I suppose so you so. can go to our website and we're going to give you, uh, one of those away. So today's one's going to Joel Mason. And, uh, so Joel, Joel is one of our mace, our members through the um, sovereignty Rocket of God. Dude. That's right. The sovereignty of God and the selection of the will of names. We put ah, all the of those of in names. there. Yes. <laughs> it took forever this time. The membership is uh, exploding. So, And Justin, I just have to say this in the beginning that uh, unless something just absolutely tanks, we should have our brand new website and our brand new membership, which we'll talk about later. Simple By the time this podcast releases, for sure. Yeah, unless something just tanks on us, we should be up and rolling on that. So go to Theocast. Should the Lord will it. Yeah, check it out. So, Justin, what are we talking about today, my friend? Oh, wait, I forgot. Listen, if you want to win a hat, I totally forgot about this. If you want to win a hat, we're giving one away. We're giving one away for free. So go to our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, 
Look for the giveaway post. There's instructions there, and we will give uh, one of these hats away to you for free. So, including shipping. We'll even pay the shipping. Word. Aren't we so generous? <laughs> I suppose. And not only are we generous, John, let it never be said of us that we do not read emails that come our way That's right. and that we do not read the Theocast Facebook group posts because yeah. we do. We do. Exhibit A is today's conversation. Mm. We're going to talk today because of popular demand. We're going to talk today about leaving dispensationalism. Mm. And we're just trying to give the people what they want, John. You know, and we had a number of people on the Facebook group post about this. And, and then like when the first post went up, there were lots of other people that chimed in and said, yes, please talk about this. So we're going to talk about it a little bit today. And the episode is entitled, as I already said, leaving dispensationalism, but just to clarify a little bit of what we're going to try to do today. Uh, and John, you can add anything you want to this. We're not going to give a bunch of technical, deep uh, heady definitions of dispensational theology or anything like that. No. What we're going to do is hopefully aim to have a an approachable conversation where we talk about the high level distinctions between our reformed confessional perspective and a dispensational perspective. That's and correct. before we even get into it, I, I'll just go ahead and give a little bit of my background that is relevant right now. And, and then John, you can talk a little bit about you as well, my exposure to dispensational theology was more general in that I was a part of a church that was uh, self-consciously liberal theologically, but had a very mixed bag in terms of the, the membership of the church. And many of the members of the church were conservative-ish, at least theologically and certainly conservative morally. And so they had been heavily influenced by just kind of the default dispensational evangelical-ish theology that was out there in the 20th century in America. And so I absorbed some of that and was never taught anything contrary to it. And so basically by default, I would have had notions of, for example, the pre-trib rapture understanding of the end of the world. Um, I definitely was aware of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. And, you know, whenever the judgment house thing would happen, um, there was definitely the rapture that occurred, you know, and like the piles of clothes everywhere. And like, you don't want to be left, um, you know, as one of the people not, cause then you're going to have to go through tribulation and all kinds of things. And, um, so yeah, that was kind of my exposure to it all. And then I began to read and encounter different theology in my early to mid twenties. And as I began to read and study and investigate scripture more on my own, from a more reformed covenantal perspective, I started to see the distinctions between what I had kind of absorbed and what I was now learning. Um, and so, yeah, that's enough about me, John, why don't you let the people know a little bit about your background? Because you, even more than I was, were steeped in dispensationalism. Yeah. Uh, and even 30, went to a, a postgraduate years. institution that would, you know, champion this kind of understanding yeah. of scripture. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, why don't you do that? And then we'll, take off and yeah yeah i've been in different uh kinds of dispensationalism i grew up in the independent fundamental baptist world my dad was a preacher for 20 years before he passed away in that world and progressively coming out of it uh we came for those of you that know anything about that world where you were my dad used to work for jack hiles and then he slowly started to read men like john MacArthur and be became more and more of i would say uh he, he started leaving it uh, and I went to uh, the two colleges that I went to were both dispensational. 
And then um, most of the churches I worked in in my early 20s were all dispensational. So I was very familiar with uh, the branding and the style, the I would even say the hermeneutic and the theology. And then I ended up going to probably one of the most prominent dispensational schools that are conservative and I would say Calvinistic in today's world. I went to the Master Seminary. Yeah. And it was there that I really began to dive deep into the dispensational perspective and understand the nuances and the differences, the different kinds of dispensationalism is. So it's not just dispensational theology. There's actually different kinds. Sure. <laughs> Excuse me. And this is not an overview of what this is because there's plenty of information out there of what dispensationalism is. And there's, mm-hmm. again, um, you know, like MacArthur, the school I don't want to, probably more of a progressive dispensationalism. If you don't, sure. you don't know what that means, you, you can kind of versus, look that in. Versus kind of a classic historical dispensational right. view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely some differences. I, I think progressive is by far better. Agree. Um, hermeneutically than a traditional classical. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of concerns that, that come from there. What we're going to really talk about is why I left it or why we kind of don't hold to that perspective. Right. Or, or at least why we're not there today. You know, why we right. believe something else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not, uh, I think we're going to, we're going to talk about the major differences. And I would say these are differences that the majority, now you're sure you can find a dispensationalist that's going to counteract us. This is the thing about it is that theology can get so broad, but I would say mainline dispensational. And I would even say mainline progressive dispensationalist. And for the sake of this argument, um, my seminary, my alma mater and John MacArthur would disagree with us and say, yes, we would not agree on these points. And so that's really what this uh, podcast is about is what we embrace to be um, what we think is biblical and historically accurate um, in our perspective. Now, to, to, to be clear, Justin, I think it's safe to say this. We need to say this. We love our dispensational brothers. Absolutely. We do not think they're heretical unless... I'm sure, again, I'm sure there's some weirdo out there that holds to some weird doctrine and calls themselves dispensationalist. I am not going to be the straw yeah. man who torches that. That is just not well, fair. Well, and the only, the mm. only things that we would condemn from a dispensational perspective are things that most dispensationalists have already condemned themselves. Like right. the idea that, you know, there are two different covenants of salvation, one with Israel and one with the church. Uh, right. That has been rejected by the vast majority of people that would call themselves dispensationalists. And we too would look at that and say, yeah, that is not at all faithful to scripture right. and is a false doctrine. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. You're not, you're not the, the Israel was not saved by the law and those under, underneath the, covenant the old are covenant. saved by Christ. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. just not, not correct. Now that right. was taught by some, uh, but that is not the prominent view today. No. And so we aren't going to bring that up as one of the oppositions because that's not what they're saying. And we no. do not want to yeah. misrepresent them. So, I would say the easiest place to begin, Justin, when we're thinking about the differences and what my journey out of dispensational theology was. So when I was actually in seminary, steeped in it, studying um, all the different books that I was reading, um, they had a lot that were talking about continuity and discontinuity between the, the New Testament and the Old Testament, um, understanding the, the different dispensations. And then, of course, I had classes on covenant theology and the way in which it was being presented. And as I began to read scripture uh, in really new eyes, when I stopped trying to read into the text, the moral application, like I'm going to be like David, be like Daniel. But I, one of the things that I am very thankful for that my seminary taught me is to understand the authorial intent. What is the author's intentions in writing the book? 
And one of the one of the things that I took from that, and sometimes this and our dispensational friends, uh, they only go to the actual author, like you know Moses or mm-hmm. the Psalms or J- Paul, whatever. But the book is authored by one God, which is you know our sovereign being, and we have to ask, what did he? What was his authorial intent? What can we look from scripture to determine what was his intentions for writing these books? Then you sure. can lower down into the individual authors, and then you can lower down even even more into to the individual applications of that text. Like, for instance, in what, what are they trying to communicate in this particular pericope or section, this paragraph? Right. So w- what I begin to discover is that the Bible had one story. It was really describing one pushing narrative. Now, the dispensationalists will say it's the glory of God is the overarching purpose of God's word and why he wrote it, which right. we're not going to disagree with that because everything no. is for the glory of God. Yeah, but there, it's, there's, it's, you can't just say this book is about God's glory when it has in the very opening scene in Genesis 3, uh, the, like the major theme, which is the fall of man and God's promise to restore man of back redemption. to his original. Yes. So it's redemption. Yeah. So I begin to see scripture unfold from a redemption or redemptive understanding. And I would say that it's not only just redemptive, but it's redemption through history. So the technical term right. for it is a redemptive historic understanding. When I, when this was introduced to me and I was reading through um, the, the counter arguments to covenant theology, I was, I was taken back by how can this not be right when it seems like all you have is the further progression of God's promises to his people through covenants to bring us the Messiah and prophecies to bring us the Messiah. Uh, I quickly began to see a redemptive historic understanding of scripture to be an accurate way of understanding how to explain the Bible. Yeah, I mean, we do not disagree with the dispensationalists that say that the Bible is about the glory of God, but we want to be more specific because we think the text is more specific and it's more clear in terms of how it is that God gets glory for himself. And certainly he is glorified in having his righteousness vindicated through judgment. And at the same time, it is quite clear that God is glorified, I'm going to go ahead and say, is most glorified in the work of redemption accomplished by his son, Jesus. That's right. And so... That is a big point of difference, which is this kind of dovetails with another piece. Not only is our understanding of covenant theology at odds with a dispensational hermeneutic with respect to the Bible and how it hangs together and how redemptive history unfolds and the like, we also are going to be explicitly Christocentric. We're going to be Jesus-centered in how we understand the Bible and its main point, that it is God's plan of redemption accomplished through Christ that brings God glory. And our dispensational friends— will disagree with us on that because for them at the center of God's plan to glorify himself, of course, they're not going to deny that Jesus is a part of this, but at the center of God's plan to bring himself glory is Israel and how God works through Israel. It's a very Israel centric hermeneutic where ours is unapologetically Jesus centric in terms of how God goes about saving his people, what the point all along was. And we're, basically taking our cue from Christ himself and certainly the apostles as they understand the entire Old Testament to be ultimately about Jesus the Christ and what he would come to do in order to accomplish redemption all to the praise of God's glorious grace. 
Yeah. And to maybe bring some clarity, um, this is what's so hard is the nuance here. And we're, and we don't want to misrepresent. Right. So to, to, to hear our hearts and hear how we're trying to express, express some, some technical differences. So I will say every dispensationalist I talk to would say, of course, the Jesus is the point of the Bible. I mean, they, right. they wouldn't reject that because to reject right. that would be, well, it would be weird. Yeah, how do you even reject such a statement? Right. right. So we don't want to throw that straw man out there either. Where their rejection is that, well, John, you guys find Jesus under every rock. When you say it's crystal centric, you're saying every single verse, you need to find Jesus in that verse. And that, that well, what I would say is you're projecting a bond, the text, sure. uh, something just like I would say people do when we think about projecting um, moral applications be like Daniel be like right. David you shouldn't do that either that's not what we're saying but the, the what we're saying is the narrative and the purpose behind what was written is to further explain clarify and reveal the shadow of Christ as we get closer to the substance of Christ right so we think everything in the old testament is a greater shadow a revealing of what's going on when it comes to the actual substance of Christ so yeah all totally. of the bible is christocentric well and it's yeah, like you're saying, I think the big difference and where this comes out maybe most pointedly is how we read and understand the Old Testament. Because we read and understand the Old Testament with Christ at the center of it as well. Uh, we do not read anything going on about the nation of Israel or with the nation of Israel, you know, and, and read that without Christ in view as the backdrop you know, through which, or I would even say a better way to phrase it is the lens through which we view Israel is Jesus. And so that, I think, is a difference between our perspective and a dispensational view. It is a hermeneutic, and a hermeneutic is a, a means or a method of interpretation, right? Like yeah. we, again, are not forcing anything down on the text. We are taking our cue from Christ and the apostles in understanding that the point of the Bible is to reveal God's plan of redemption through history as it has unfolded, and all of his plan to save his people has centered upon Christ. And so we would we would understand, like you said at the beginning, John, that yes, we're concerned with authorial intent at the human level, Moses, Paul, David, whoever mm -hmm, it may be. Mm -hmm. And we are primarily concerned with authorial intent at the divine level, because That's there is right. one author of scripture, namely the Holy Spirit, who inspired men to write exactly what God would have written down. And so we want to get underneath any kind of human authorial intent and see exactly what God intends to reveal. And God right. has not left us in the dark on that. That's because right. as we look at the entire canon and how it hangs together, we are able to better interpret the Old Testament in light of the new. Mm. And as we've said many times on here, the best interpreter of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the New Testament. That's right. And so, yeah, that's where we're going to come at odds, I think, with some of our dispensational friends. If we were to go to an Old Testament text, it's going to become very obvious that the way that we're coming at it is different. That's right. No, and that's really helpful. And I I think it's encouraging to see where we do agree with our dispensational brothers. This is why we can uh, call them our brothers. And there's a lot of totally. I've learned from them. They've been super helpful in their interpretation of Scripture and I, but I will say that it does impact your use of the Old Testament um, completely, right? My my alma mater uh, did an entire lecture series on why they would reject a Christocentric understanding of the yeah. Old Testament, 
Um, John MacArthur has openly stated that the primary reason he teaches from the New Testament is that we're in the New Testament era. So the Old Testament right. is not. We're in the era of the of the gospel of the Messiah. Right. And so the Old Testament is really not all that applicable. Other than illustration. To, yeah. Other than to moralize it and apply it, you know, in those kinds of ways. Is right. that fair? Yeah. And if you go to his book yeah. on preaching, it's been around for years, which he still holds to that basically you can use the old Testament for great illustrations. And then there are sections about the prophecy of Christ, sure. but as, sure. as it relates to preaching Christ from the old Testament, it's just not something that they promote. Whereas for us, again, as reformed guys who are covenantal in our theology, we hold to the three historic covenants. The first one being the covenant of redemption that was made in eternity past between the members of the Godhead, most pointedly between the father and the son where the father and son agree together about redemption and how it would be accomplished. And the son is going to be the one to do it. Then we would understand the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the garden. And dispensationalists would agree, would disagree with us on that language. They would just mm-hmm. say, well, that's just not in the scripture. And then we also would understand the covenant of grace that is promised in Genesis 3.15, when God promises that there would be one who would come from the seed of the, who would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. We understand that to be the first promise of the covenant of grace that then is going to be revealed through farther steps and ultimately established through Christ in the new covenant dispensationalists would agree, disagree with us, excuse me, completely with respect to that framework. That's right. And they would say, well, that's not in the Bible. You guys are imposing that down upon the text. Um, and we would just say, no, actually, we are aiming to responsibly read the entire Bible and see how it hangs together as a whole. And therefore, what we're saying about these covenants actually comes up out of the text and then helps that's us right. understand the whole thing. And That's a little right. bit of what's going on there, John, I mean, I'll go ahead and throw these two words out there and briefly define them. Sure. When a dispensationalist would argue with us about covenant theology and say that those three covenants respectively are not in the Bible, I think two things are going on. One is a little bit of word concept fallacy where it's like, well, the words that you're using are not in the Bible. And so we shouldn't talk that way. And of course, the greatest thing to bring up there is like, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, yet it's the best way we know to express the threeness and the oneness of God. <laughs> you know, so three yeah. in one, right? Trinity. Right. And so that's that's a little bit on that. The other thing that I think goes on with dispensationalists, because of their high view of the Bible and their high view of inerrancy, they do tend toward biblicism, where there's just this kind of, well, if we need to see it chapter and verse in a text, and then we can we could talk this way. And what you're saying is not there chapter and verse in that sense. And so we disagree with your theological framework. To which, again, our response is, well, this stuff is very clearly revealed over the course of the whole canon from Genesis to Revelation, and it makes sense of the entire thing, and there's this unified thread that runs through. Yeah. And covenant theology, in, in a redemptive historical understanding with Jesus at the center, all of that hangs together. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, A Primer on Rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. Thankful to our dispensational brothers, they do fight against the logical conclusion of biblicism, which ends up being open theism, because if you have to have the actual 
text say something or you take every text literal and you won't allow scripture to interpret scripture and you do not allow the explanation of all of scripture to apply, you could come to the conclusion that God doesn't know the future, that God sure. isn't in the future and, and that God isn't eternal. And that's what open theism has done. It's the ultimate conclusion of what biblicism. Totally. And we, we will do a podcast on biblicism. I trust in the next few months, because it's something right. that John and I've talked about. Mm-hmm. Biblicism, basically what you get there, guys, is people take words in the biblical text and they pit one text against another. That's right. They introduce a tension and a mystery that is actually not there mm-hmm. that can be harmonized and explained quite easily with, you know, appropriate hermeneutical tools. Yeah. But biblicism, you know, again, it, it actually unsettles us because it's like, well, this is saying this and this is saying that. And apparently there's a contradiction here and there's a mystery right. and a tension here. And that actually does not exist. Mm-hmm. If we understand the scripture rightly, we would argue. For yeah. example, from a covenantal, redemptive, historical, Christ-centered perspective. That's right. So when we're talking about uh, a dispensationalist would openly agree that they are not covenantal. As a matter of fact, it literally they is would. A and B. It's uh, oil and water. It is. There is a, there is a distinct yeah. difference that both covenantalist and historic dispensationalists are not going to agree on these frameworks of interpretation. And I will agree, and I will say that dispensationalism is a framework of interpretation. It's how you interpret God's Absolutely. word, right? And so they, um, you know, I don't want to. They would say the way in which they understand the word of God to ex- unfold and explain itself is through these seven dispensations, which we're not going to get into. But they yeah. are going to interpret all of their Bible through those lenses, and, and so the application of it yeah. is going to come from that lens of a seven dispensation lens. Now, the people are going to differ on what those dispensations are, sure. but it is broken up and there's not continuity between the two. But those seven dispensations in and of themselves are a theological system and framework, right? Because I think a that lot of I, times yeah, what's you, interesting yeah. is that the dispensationalist <laughs> argument against reformed covenantal types like us right. is that we are using and relying too much upon a theological framework or a theological system, mm-hmm. you know, and and implication, they are not. And it's like, well, yeah, those seven dispensations, that's a system and a framework of its own. And the other thing that can sometimes happen is, at least I've heard this before, um, a dispensationalist will say, you know, we're just using, we're just using the Bible, whereas Total you guys language, are using, yeah. you know, confessions and creeds and things like this uh, alongside the scripture. And, you know, humbly, I would say this, it's like, well, you know, what do you think that Schofield study Bible is? You know, I... <laughs> I mean, that thing has some stuff that's not in the biblical text, too, that very much sounds, again, like a, a confessional thing, or it sounds like a, a creed of sorts, or it certainly, like I say, contains some kind of a theological system in it. Uh, well, you're claiming that you're dispen- not doing that. Yeah, know? any true dispensationalist is not—I very rarely meet somebody who can fully explain dispensationalism, and they came up with that on their own. It's, it's been handed sure. down to them. Uh, sure. I, you know, I just have never really met someone who fully explained dispensationalist and then a dispensationalist goes, you know, that's dispensational theology. It just, again, right. is it out there? Sure. Broadly speaking, broadly speaking, that is not the case. So we would say yeah. just, we have to be careful that just because it's not a specific verse or word in the Bible doesn't mean the concept. Of, I mean, to Trinity is really, a, 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 or even the eternality of God or the sovereignty of God, sure. these big concepts um that a lot of time it takes a lot of scripture to help explain what's going on with this theological 
understanding, or we could say system, or we could say systematic of understanding it. So mm-hmm. uh, covenant theology is going to be definitely something that when I began to understand it and understand the hermeneutic of it, I very much embraced the idea of it because it was consistent with the flow of Scripture, and it was consistent with the explanation of Scripture. Of course, Justin and I, just to be clear, we are Reformed in our understanding from a covenantal perspective of the London Baptist Confession. Uh, if you want to know the technical phrase of that, it would be the 69 uh, Federalists is our, our understanding of that. Full explanation of that in the link below or in our comments, go to there. We did a whole five-part series on our perspective covenant of theology. covenant theology. So yeah. we'll move on from that. We don't need to spend but more time there. Last thing I may say before we move on to another item is um, I've referenced this earlier, and I think you have too, John, the fact that Israel is such a, a big deal in terms of a dispensational theological framework where Israel becomes a big point of emphasis and focus from a dispensational perspective to the point that I think a dispensational, at least as I've always heard it taught and explained, um, and even as you and I've talked, I think this this holds water and you can push back on me if, if you think this is overstating it. But I think that in a dispensational view, um, Israel, in terms of God's people and, and God mm-hmm. saving his people, Israel is the point. And the church is kind of the parenthesis. Yeah, that's know? fair. Whereas yeah. from our perspective, we would say it's actually maybe the opposite, that Israel is the parenthesis and that the church, God's people, the both people Jew God. and Gentile, mm-hmm. the elect from all nations, tribes, and peoples, and all that stuff around the throne of God, that's the point. Yeah. You know, and that Israel was the parenthesis. And so that's a fundamentally different perspective there too. Mm-hmm. in terms of how we understand God's purposes in redemption and what he's always been out to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I will say because of these two theological differences, you are going to have the dispensationalist has a heavy view on in time theology, the rapture. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Now, this may not be true today of all dispensationalists, but of the ones I grew up in and the Tim LaHaye and that you were talking about the Left Behind series, sure. the the end time theology was a scare tactic to get you to live completely. Straight. It was a scared straight tactic. It's all fear and judgment. Yeah. yeah. There was no assurance on Christ and resting in Christ, looking forward to the return of Christ. I was dreading the return of Christ. I did not want him to come. Oh, it's a frightening reality. Yeah. I mean, we would do the whole, you know, scare people by leaving our clothes all over for a youth group. I actually watched the original left behind, (laughs) you know, uh, left behind series where, you know, it was back in the seventies. I think it was very disturbing. And, uh, that, the, the inf- so the number one question we get all the time because a lot of dispensationalists are listening to us. They ask us, "What is your you know hermeneutic on end time theology?" And uh, be because it's so emphasized and it's so part of this theological system that what you believe about the return of Christ is um, of of paramount for whatever reason. I will, let me tell you this, and that we're we're not going to do a podcast on this today, but I, I'm going to just no, throw this out there that. Uh, Dispensationalists, all millennialists, post millennialists, any any of those positions that you want to take, they all agree. Or historic pre mill. Yeah. Or historic pre mill. They all agree that Christ is coming back. Yep. He's going to rule and reign, and we yep. will live with him forever in our new bodies, in the new heavens and a new earth, in a physical realm, not a spiritual realm. That's that's that right. was rejected a long time ago. Right. In a physical realm. All positions hold that. Our brothers, we do not need to be calling each other's heretics 
in yeah. our disagreements on these positions. Yeah. Justin and I have our pers- perspective, but yeah. It, so whatever reason in the dispensational well, world, the return of Christ and those details, if you don't get it wrong, you are a heretic in some yeah, ways, if you not don't, everybody. If you don't get it right and if you don't have a particular view on it, exactly, then you are you know less than at best, if not anathema, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of how you would be viewed. And yeah, like I agree with you, John. Whenever I talk about eschatology, even teaching our membership class at our church, I mean, our elders are united in our perspective. I don't tell people what that is. And I also will say to them, here's what you need to agree on, to your point, that Jesus is coming back, that it's going to be personal, it's going to be visible, it's going to be bodily, it's going to be glorious. Mm. Yeah. And that there will be a judgment according to righteousness, and that all those in Christ will be resurrected unto eternal life. You know, and to live with God forever and with each other in a new heavens and a new earth that's just as physical as this. If we believe those things, we're good to go. You know, and All we right. can be charitable there. All right, let's move on before we. We got two get more. We got to get to. That's right. Law gospel distinction. So, Justin, real quick, tell us what it is and why it's different. Well, I can talk about what the law gospel distinction is first. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, so we absolutely. start there. Yeah, we um hold to, I mean, we've done some podcasts and I'm sure we'll link to this in the show notes. Yep, we've absolutely. done several podcasts on law gospel distinction and even the podcast that would have released a few weeks ago at this point called, are you a legalist or an antinomian is a very good law gospel podcast in and yep. of itself where we understand that there is a distinction between the law and the gospel where they need to be kept distinct. The law reveals most pointedly and fundamentally in God's moral law what God requires of humanity if we are going to be righteous in his sight. And then the gospel, um, distinct from the law, reveals what God has done for us through Christ. So the law tells us what we need to do. The gospel tells us what God has done through Jesus for us in our place. And so the law, as we understand it, because of the fall and because we are all born corrupt, we're born sinful, we all stand condemned by the law. And so the things that the law demands of us, we can't do. That's right. And then the gospel, though, on the flip side, is completely about what Jesus has done and actually contains not one single word of anything that we need to do. Mm. It is the news of Christ and what he has accomplished for us in our place that we receive simply by faith, by trusting in Christ. Mm. And so that distinction between law and gospel is huge in a confessional reform theological framework. And it has everything to do with assurance and peace before God, because when we blend law and gospel or confuse those two categories, a lot of bad things happen. But perhaps the first thing that often occurs is you end up turning the gospel into a kind of covenant of works where there are things that you need to do in order to be saved, even by Christ. That's right. There are things that the gospel demands of us that we need to be doing, and we would disagree with that notion that there are not demands made in the gospel, but it is a proclamation and a declaration of something that has already been done for us that we receive. And so we would live and die on this hill um, and would contend for this. I mean, we would stake our ministries on this, the distinction between law and gospel. And a dispensationalist, John, is not going to agree with us on this law gospel distinction perspective. Why don't you unpack that a little bit in terms of how, where the disagreement would lie? Yeah, uh, a couple of the resources in the in the description, uh, the, the demands of the gospel, are there demands in the gospel? This is a perfect example of a law gospel yeah, distinction and 
confusing the law with the gospel. So uh, there is articles by prominent evangelicals that are out there, dispensationalists, people that I graduated from school with, and even my own school would say, we don't see this hermeneutic. And now to be clear again, not every Bible verse in the Bible can be defined as either law or gospel. There's sometimes no, there's narrative, narrative. all those things. Yeah, right. Totally. So don't, don't be thinking what we're trying to put this on into every verse, but when you're seeing when we're in a passage, we do have to ask ourselves, are we being told what we must do to save ourselves or are we being told what was done so that we are saved? Yeah. What has or, been are declared? we even being told what we need to do in order to be righteous? That's right. You know, yeah, and I yeah. would even say the three uses of the law, man, we didn't, take off, we didn't talk about this in the beginning, but the three uses of the law is also a great definition of something that's different probably between dispensationalists and uh, reformed. But are, the, the what happens when you don't, when you're not careful to separate the law from the gospel, and I would say not all dispensationalists would hold to lordship salvation, but because of men like John MacArthur sure. who has made dispensationalism Calvinism and, and Lordship Salvation so popular over the last 30, 40 years. I mean, 50 yeah. years, I think he's now been preaching. Yeah. Bless, yeah. bless his heart for that, man. Faithful man. Yeah, I know. Anyways, because of that, um, law gospel distinction begins to break down Lordship Salvation because mm-hmm. the passages that are used to promote Lordship Salvation are actually law, not they gospel. Are. Right. They would make them, they would say, for instance, books that have been read hard to believe the gospel according to Jesus, the gospel according yeah. to the apostles. All of those are hard passages, like when the rich young ruler comes and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a law passage we turn into a right. gospel passage. Yeah. We collapse the two categories and we end up That's losing right. and confuse, maybe not losing, but we end up confusing both the law and the gospel. Really quick, really quick, John, to pick up on what you said about the uses of the law. I'm only going to talk about one of them. For us as Reformed guys, and we've got you know, Lutheran friends who would agree with us on this as well, the first and greatest use of the law is to show us our sin and to drive us to Christ. And a dispensationalist, to my understanding, would not articulate the point of the law that way. Because again, it has everything to do with our redemptive historical hermeneutic and a Christ-centered hermeneutic in answering that question, what was the law for? You know, we are ultimately going to understand that, a la Paul in Romans 5 and Galatians 3, that the law came in to increase the trespass and to, mm. to bankrupt us That's and right. crush us so that we might be driven to Christ who fulfilled the law for us in his active obedience in his perfect life, right? And yeah, that's so right. that's uh, the active obedience of Jesus in fulfilling the law is another huge tenet of our theology um, that is a result of, you know, our study of scripture, but also it, it dovetails beautifully with how we understand the law in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah. All, All right. right. Well, we can, our last I suppose one, we Justin, can pivot and move forward. Yeah. And I do, I have some thoughts on that, but we're going to save that for simple Riffamanda a little bit later. Uh, cool. That's our podcast. So, <clears throat> The last one I would say is predominantly, again, not in all cases, but historically why I uh, moved to this direction and away from a dispensational understanding of scripture is the idea of sanctification being either synergistic, the work that we do, or monergistic, the work that God does. Historically speaking, it's a very synergistic movement. Um, Again, there are some who are, yep, there are some who would, 
promote a monergistic perspective, but I historically teach speaking and the way I was taught in seminary and growing up is that your progress in the Christian life of how you become more like Christ is dependent upon your own efforts. And I would even say it was a, it's a synergistic to understand. It's not primarily your efforts. It's like Christ is working in you and you're working. So they aren't saying all of sanctification is all your work. That's, would be an unfair representation. It's that you're like sanctifying yourself in your own strength. Of course not. They're going to acknowledge right. the grace of yeah. God and the work of God. But it is very much an understanding that we need to do our part and that That's we right. need to cooperate in that sense with the grace of God in our sanctification. Mm-hmm. Whereas for us, from a, a more Reformed perspective, we are unashamed in saying that we understand, rather than synergism, two workers, we understand right. that there is one worker, monergism, in terms of our understanding of sanctification. And that one worker, of course, is God. And That's right. basically, to put it bluntly, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. We in no part, in no way, do the work of sanctification. Now, we participate in our That's sanctification right. because yep. we are alive now. We have been given spiritual life in Christ. We have been raised to walk in newness of life in Him, and thereby— by the virtue of being alive, we participate, but we do and I would not also do say, the work. Right. And I think another way of saying that, Justin, is we observe, like we can observe the work of sanctification sure. in our lives through, um, you know, Paul gives us ways in which we see that, like the way in which that we are growing in the knowledge and the maturity of Christ sure. and the trust of Christ sure. and, and, our, and the, the, an increase of grace and mercy towards each other and love and affection towards each other. Those are all the works of the Holy Spirit and sanctification. A lot of times when Completely. I heard, I mean, this is, again, this is not of all dispensations, but the breed I came from, sanctification was you didn't cuss, you stopped drinking, and you stopped going to movies. You're being sanctified. <laughs> I'm just like sure. that. That's just moral action change, and some of it's sure. not even wrong. Yeah, and what I mean, even in using that word, participate. Just like we, I would say that every human being who is alive participates in life because he or she is alive. That's right. And that's all I'm saying is that we that's participate right. in our sanctification because we are now alive, mm-hmm. and that yet God works, and God is right. the only one who can change the heart. Yeah. And God is the only one who can conform us into the likeness and image of his son. Mm-hmm. And he is faithful to do it. And he has promised us that it will happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that we will be sanctified in this life and we will be fully sanctified at the point of the resurrection. That's and right. we can bank on that. Uh, it's not in jeopardy. And yeah, I mean, so not only that synergism, monergism piece, but also a, something that we're going to emphasize heavily from a reformed perspective is how it is that we ordinarily grow in the Christian life. And that would be for us an understanding of the ordinary means of grace. And so those ordinary means, just to be very clear, most prominently are the word of God, sacrament and prayer. And then, you know, some would maybe even add in song, you know, in the midst of the gathered right. church as well as we're built up and edified in that way. But the, the church gathered, the saints assembled together to sit under word, to partake of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, to pray and sing. That's how we understand that we are ordinarily and primarily grown in the faith. And that emphasis is somewhat unique. Now, a dispensationalist, a dispensationalist excuse me, is not going to disagree with any of those things. No. But it's going to really be, John, maybe you could speak to this more. It's about the emphasis. That's right. And what is put first. And then, yeah, why don't you talk about that? The... Historically, the Reformed have seen 
our sanctification in Christ. Not let me let me put it this way, Justin. The the protection of the believer, the growth of the believer, and the confession of the believer are primarily from the New Testament given to the local church. So we are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves, that we are to function properly so we build ourselves up in love to maturity in Christ, to the full knowledge of Christ so that no one is tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, This is given to us in Hebrews 3, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10. It's given to us in Ephesians 4. Uh, So you you are given these primary means, I mean, uh, uh, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So there's a heavy emphasis mm-hmm. on God's word, the gathered people, the sacraments. There's, those are not to be done individually. You aren't to take the Lord's table by yourself. You aren't to be baptizing by yourself. Yeah. First Corinthians 10, first Corinthians 11, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Even the concept of prayer, uh, you have majority of the Bible speaks of prayer in a corporate reality. There is absolutely a, obviously an individual aspect of it. But if you're going to weigh it, it is a primary means of a corporate gathering so that we are building each other up. We're carrying each other's burdens. We're confessing. I mean, James three, we're confessing our sins to one another. So the ordinary way in which God uh, grows his people is within the local assembly through the ordinary means. Dispensationalism traditionally has emphasized uh, spiritual disciplines, and I would even say the priesthood of all believer, which is something we absolutely say, amen. Our faith is not tied to a priest, but we are tied yeah. to Christ, the ultimate There priest. is one mediator but, between God and man. Right, but that right. doesn't mean now that your sanctification is primarily in your hands because it's between you, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. That's an right. individualistic understanding. It's something that it I wouldn't say all dispensationalists hold to, but predominantly, this is why I walked away from it, because they don't promote they do not emphasize the ordinary means it's not the primary means of spiritual growth primary means of spiritual growth is my individual individual efforts with god's pursuit, word in my own yeah, obedience of the pursuit, lord yeah. yeah yeah completely well yeah, justin we so are that, running out of yeah. time man go ahead go ahead no we are one last observation and this is not a huge thing i mean uh even the language that we'll use about the ordinary means and the terminology some of that's a little different um, I know that, at least in my experience, dispensationalists would be very uncomfortable with the word sacraments mm. in, to describe the table and the and baptism. I mean, because I guess in the minds of many, it's associated with Roman Catholicism. But and it maybe maybe for them is part and parcel of a sacerdotal theology where we would understand that the sacraments just operate on their own. And that is not at all what we mean, though. I do think in our framework, John, we have a very high view of the sacraments as a means of grace, where God is present and is really there to bless and sustain and nourish us through the table and through baptism as well. And it's his testimony to us of what he's going to do. Uh, And so that's a big thing too. I mean, even as a, just a small subset of that ordinary means conversation. Okay. So we have bumped up against our time cap here. Hopefully some of the things that we said were of use for you in clarifying things and uh, hopefully you can see some of the high-level differences that would exist between a Reformed confessional understanding and a dispensational view. I think John wants to say one more thing. Yeah, well, and this is just about where you're about to go, which I'm assuming you're totally taking us in there. But So this is brand new. You this would assume correctly. First, our first initial announcement um, on the podcast, and we, we record multiple weeks out in advance, so sometimes we're behind on stuff. But we have a new ministry, a new part of Theocast. It's called Semper Reformand. Excuse me, T got to me. Simper Reformanda, 
uh, always reforming. And Sipper Reformanda mm-hmm. is our new way for you to join in on two things. First of all, we have a brand new podcast called the Simple Reformanda Podcast, SR Podcast. That's going, we're going in that next. This is high level conversations where we take what we introduce to you in this podcast and we're going to, we're going to go a little bit deeper and more technical. Secondly, that podcast is designed to go along with a brand new program called SR Groups, Simple Reformanda Groups, where you can now sign up. We are, we are, we are developing these groups right now, but you can sign up for a local group in your city that you can go and now have discussions on this very subject with other people who are having the same questions. So we will provide discussion questions and you can download our app, which should be available now. You can go down to the Apple store, look for the Simple Reformanda app. You can download that and then sign up for a local group. And in order to do that, you have to be an SR member. And if you want to be an SR member, just go to sr.theocast.org and you can learn more about that. That's it. Yeah, and even and even in the SR podcast, which is where we're going, the Simper Reformanda podcast, even if we don't get more technical in every aspect of it, we certainly will be a little bit more transparent. And it's a little yeah. more more of a safe space and family time. And, and we hope that that podcast has that kind of feel. Definitely that sounds interesting to you. Yeah, <laughs> if that sounds interesting to you, then go to our website, theocast.org, and you would learn anything that you need to know about becoming a part of Simper Reformanda and joining the Reformation there. All right, John, here we go, man. We're going to see what we can give the people over there in our new SR podcast. We'll talk to many of you over there. We'll talk with the rest of you again next week.